Uh, okay, hey, well, welcome back, everybody. To, uh, it's going to be great. We, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Blessed Lord, since you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, and learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. The monkhood of all believers. How, I, how Martin Luther's view on monasticism can renew our life of prayer. It's pretty fancy. But let me tell you a little story about kind of why this all came about. When I was, you know, pastor, learning to be a pastor, uh, life of prayer was very important. And one of my favorite things about going to seminary, or one of the things I was most excited about when going to seminary, was not only learning about the Bible and all that, was the amount of opportunities to pray on campus. So they have morning prayer in the, mor in the morning, morning prayer or matins, then in the afternoon they have vespers or evening prayer, and then they have comp line at the end of the day. And that always, that took place in chapel, and that was a really wonderful thing. And one of the things that I was really surprised at was how few of my classmates took advantage of the afternoon and evening prayer offices, Vespers and Compline. You know, so that was something that I just kind of made a mental note of, you know, for whatever reason. And then when I entered into the ministry, and came past here at St. John. One of the things that was really instrumental in my, I don't know, survival in the ministry is prayer and prayer life. And all that was being formed while I was at seminary, praying matins, vespers, compline, and the regular prayer. So I didn't think about it. I didn't think anything about it, really. It's just a very personal kind of thing of, you know, practicing my prayers. Then, a vicar, I won't say what vicar it was, because he could be your favorite vicar, I don't know. But prayer came up in our discussions. And I asked him, how would you kind of describe your prayer life? And he, could, he couldn't really describe it. Which, I said, hey, whoa, you, that's something we have to work on then. Because you're going to be a pastor. And that is uh, fundamental to being a pastor. However, it's not really fundamental to being only a pastor. This is just fundamental to our life as Christians. And so the vicar, he didn't really know where to begin. I thought, oh, well, this is easy. It's in your hymnal. You have morning prayer and evening prayer and compline. In fact, there's a section in the middle of the hymnal where you don't even have to chant it or sing it. You can just speak it. So I had him, and I really don't remember what time of the year it was. In my mind, it's just before Lent starts, and he does it 40 days of Lent. But I can't remember when it was. It was sometime, and we, we, I had a designated amount of time, which I think was one month, and he needed to do that every day, morning and the afternoon. So wake up in the afternoon before he goes to bed. And after the month we met, 
And he was, he's like, this is great, Pastor. I really appreciate this. But he said, it's kind of like I'm a monk. And I said, oh, I guess I didn't really think about it that way. Why do you say that? Well, isn't that what monks do? I said, well, yes, I I think you're right. But I don't know any monks, so I really don't know. And then I kind of reiterated, which is another kind of side tangent thing, but I reiterated, reiterated that fact that just because, you know, the monks might pray routinely, that doesn't mean we don't pray routinely. And, you know, it's in the hymnal, buddy. It's in the hymnal. So it's not like it's not part of our tradition. So anyways, but that little phrase, I'm kind of like a monk, had really stuck with me. And it was something that I thought, oh, I guess he's kind of right. But, you know, when I get an idea, sometimes I go down the rabbit hole. And so I end up reading about what Martin Luther says about monasticism. And one of the things that I learned after reading about it was how Martin Luther actually took the monastic sort of piety and brought it into the home. If you want to say one thing about how Martin Luther understands monasticism in terms of practice, not in terms of theology, we'll talk about that in three or four weeks, is that he didn't lower monastic piety, but in fact raised domestic piety to match so that whether, this is a very famous line, whether you're a monk, a pope, or a milkmaid, you are uh, just as holy as the other. And that wasn't to bring down these, but it was to elevate a quote-unquote normal vocation. Well, anyways, that's what I thought. Okay, great. Now, I don't know what year this was, because I would have to look it up, but there was a gentleman who wrote this book called The Benedict Option. Some of you might have heard of it before. It's kind of well-known, made the rounds. Well, John Klein, I had not read it. I still have yet to read it. But John Kleinig, in correspondence with me and Pastor Bruzek, said, hey, I read this book. It's really great. You should, you should read it. Uh, it reminds me of what Luther says about monastic piety. I was like, oh, I'm not the only one who thinks this. This is interesting. So, again, this is all kind of all happening in my brain, in my life. Then I actually meet some monks for the first time. Monks and nuns. Through this uh, Theology of the Body Institute. Uh, First time I met them was in 2016, and routinely I've met several, every class I take. And one of the most interesting things about them that I've been really interested in learning from them is just their life of prayer. You know, for, for whatever our images of monks and monasteries are, the, the primacy of their prayer life is commendable. And so I, I was very interested in talking to them about their prayer life and discussing, you know, none of them really knew Martin Luther, so that wasn't really helpful because I really wanted to ask them, you know, what they thought about Luther's critiques and his thoughts. So this whole point, though, that these, through these experiences, oh, and then finally, 
specifically the monkhood of all believers, where that comes from, is from Matt Milliner, Professor Matt Milner. I talked to him in August, just within the week of uh, Pastor Harsel declining the call to come here. Because I have always wanted Matt to come and teach women's Bible study, but I knew that men's Bible study was going to be changing, and, and so I said, hey, could you teach men's Bible study? So we ended up talking on the phone, and for whatever reason, monasteries came up. And I mentioned this thing about my perspective on how Martin Luther didn't necessarily want to eradicate monasteries and their spirituality. He wanted to eradicate works righteousness, and those are not those don't always go together, monasteries and works righteousness. But in terms of piety, he wanted to elevate a domestic piety to be similar to monastic piety. And Matt Milner said, oh, well, there's a guy, Dr. Greg Peters. He says the same thing. I said, oh, I never heard of him. He's like, oh, he wrote a nice little book called The Monkhood of All Believers. You should read it. So I did. And so as we kind of venture into how Martin Luther's, well, I changed view, critiques of um, monasticism can renew our life of prayer, this is where it's all coming from. This is my experience of prayer, my experiences with monks, and then finally the academic pursuit with Dr. Greg Peters. All right, so I just, I feel like I should say that for some reason. All right, one of the things, though, as we... I have, a, I have a word here, resourcement. Now, it's French. I have no idea how to pronounce it in French. But it, it was a French term that came into theology in the middle of the 20th century. And what it, what it means is, I think, I, think I, I can't remember if I... Oh, is resortment is the rediscovery and recovery of the past in order to give fresh expression to contemporary faith. So, rediscovery recovery of the past in order to fresh expression of contemporary faith. If anyone has studied the Reformation, what is Martin Luther's claim about justification by faith? Is this a new doctrine? Does he claim a new doctrine? No. In fact, what does he claim? Yeah, this is the faith of the Yeah. So, resourcement, big fancy French word, is actually something that's been happening in theology for a long time in the most kind of dramatic perspective is, in fact, Martin Luther, who studied the old texts, the ancient texts, and rediscovered what justification means. Not by works, but by faith. I also have a little personal example of this, is how Advent saints, I call Advent saints, saints that have their saint days during Advent, help my family prepare for Christmas. They say, what are you talking about? Well, during a time of the Reformation, the saints basically were the big deal and Jesus was secondary. This is why Martin Luther made a big deal about celebrating the actual day. We don't even, we don't even think about it because this is just how we do things now. But back during the Reformation, that wasn't the case. In fact, it was all the saints were sort of crowding Jesus out of the picture when it came to Advent and Christmas. Well, okay, great. So there was a Reformation, of course. 
And what happened, though, was saints were basically pushed completely out of the picture as if they don't really matter and have no impact on our faith. Now, if anyone loves your father or your grandfather because they've impacted your faith, then you love the saints. Okay, I just want to make sure that is a matter of degree in your life. So, just want to make sure you understand that. So, I, when I was growing in my faith, I kept learning about St. Nicholas or St. Lucia, or even like St. Patrick or St. Gregory, all these different saints, Bernard of Clairvaux. And they were so very influential in my life. I'm like, oh, these guys are these amazing stories. I should know more about them. And of course, Christmas is completely commercialized. I'm a big fan of Charlie Brown's Christmas because I, I believe 100% in the message of that. It's totally true, and it still applies. Okay. So to decommercialize my family's Christmas experience, I said, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to start celebrating these saint days. December 6th. St. Nicholas Day, December 13th, St. Lucia Day. And we are going to participate in these old church rituals, uh, first of all, because I think they're fun, but also because the saints are more about Jesus than, you know, reindeers and a variety of other things that are part of our, quote, like, you know, Christmas preparation. So I I took this, I rediscovered... The saints in our life, using the Reformation, Article 22 in the Augsburg Confession, if you really want to get nerdy. And then I, it helped me bring a fresh perspective on my faith. So this idea of resourcement is really important for us because I think we do this often, we just don't have a name for it, and, and so I want to put a name to it. Because as we start taking a look at how monastic piety is practiced, we want to resource it, or resourcement, and rediscover it, and then apply a fresh perspective using Martin Luther. Sounds crazy, but it will work. What is monasticism? All right, let's just ask a simple question. When you think of monasteries, what do you think about? The cloister. Cloister? What's a cloister? It's where everyone Yeah, it's where everyone lives together, right? Okay. Maybe like a cheap motel. Yeah, castle on a hill. That's, that's, I concur with Scott. Yes, I do. I think of that. Beer. <laughs> Beer. That's a more, that's, I, I wasn't expecting that, but that is true. Yes. <laughs> Beer, coffins, I think is another one. Mead. Is that an alcoholic drink? Mead, right? Yeah. There's somebody in the congregation who, I think it's a Trappist place out in Iowa, maybe. That, that, you've been there, okay. Well, this is a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. Apparently, we're well associated with monasteries here. This would be interesting because I wonder if beer was the main thing when we think about monasteries and Martin Luther you know, were to show up today. I wonder how he would understand monasteries if the first thought was beer making. Interesting. And thought about that. Okay. Well, here. I mean, so this is the thing. I think a lot of people, obviously non-Roman Catholics, don't really think about it. So I, I got a little quote here. For many in the non-Roman Catholic world, monasticism, if it's considered at all, 
is perceived as a relic of the past, retreat from the world, or a shrinking from the call of the Great Commission. The call of the Great Commission, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded you. Okay. I, through my whole experience, you know, I came to this thing, like, are we at the point where we say there are practices that are only Roman Catholic and practices that are only Lutheran? And does monasticism fit within those? Or did monasticism get thrown out with the critiques and now it's just simply forgotten and ignored? And is there a possibility for us to revisit that? So this is Greg Peters' little quote here. Monasticism refers to those who intentionally live alone or in community under a rule of life and vows that give shape to their daily routine and shared mission in life. So as we begin to talk about it, now Greg Peters is a non-Roman Catholic. He's an Anglican pastor and a professor of theology at Biola University, which is uh, out in Los Angeles. And so he has a non-Roman Catholic perspective on monasticism, and so that's what we're going to kind of use, because I, I, I am sympathetic towards it. So even if we understand it just in this definition, the point of things is giving shape to the daily routine and shared mission. So this idea of the rule and the vows has a point not in and of themselves, which was Martin Luther's critique, but was meant to shape the daily routine and mission in life. So it gave form to a Christian life. And if we understand monasticism that way, then it sort of starts to open up for us and how we then can maybe apply some of those principles into our daily life and then grow in holiness. Okay, right. What's a monk? This is just a Google search, by the way. I don't know who these people are. I don't even know if I can use it. But they are Benedictine. Well, I shouldn't say that. I typed in Benedictine monk. Because I always thought Benedictine monks had brown on, but I don't know. Anyways, all right, there's no rhyme or reason for that. All right, so it comes from the Greek word, or it's a, it's a compound word, but uh, manos, alone, solitary. And, oh yeah, here. So M-O-N, I know it looks like a V. So man, ex, it goes. That's actually, that is the one for monastery. But anyways, the first reference to all this was to a monastery or to a monk as a position was in the early 4th century, in the early, in the early 300s. But it's referenced in a legal document where the, uh, a man was getting mugged and a monk, a couple monks stopped and rescued the man and ended up like beating up the thugs. Just kind of interesting, I know. But it was reported because then the, 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 the government got involved with the perpetrators. But his, his name was Isaac. Monk. The monk Isaac. So the fact that it was written without explanation in, in the early three, 300s probably means that as a as a monastery and as a sort of like a calling in life was probably at least definitely in the late 200s. So, but again, that's where that term comes from, okay? A monk is someone who has 
but in terms of how we want to understand it is a monk is someone who is single-minded, has a single-mindedness towards God in devotion and contemplation of him. So that means, now, as most monks, that picture, there's an outside and inner life. Outside life, inner life. The outside life is the habit, that's their outfit, monastery, their vows, their prayer hours. But what really makes the monk is the inner life. And this is going to be the part that we're going to be able to really kind of mine for treasure in order to apply to our own life. And that is, you know, the prayer life, the pursuit of holiness, and a, a deeper commitment to Christ. So both of these are connected through the heart, but again, it's the inside that makes the monk, not the outside. And that, again, is one of the critiques of Martin Luther. All right, so the types of monks. We've got St. Anthony of Egypt on the left side and some Benedictine monks on the right side. St. Anthony on the left. By the way, his day was yesterday. His saint day was yesterday. January 17th. That was yesterday, right? Yeah. Was today 18th or 17th? Yeah, so it was yesterday. St. Anthony. St. Anthony was a monk in Egypt, and he lived by himself. He was a hermit, and that is the anchor night. Someone who lives by himself. But he's never alone. And St. Anthony would routinely host visitors. So people would come out of Alexandria, of Egypt, and come and visit him for spiritual direction and wisdom, and he would receive visitors every day. But he lived by himself. He didn't live in a community. However, because he was so influential as a, as a, as a spiritual director, people would come out into the desert and set up their own little huts or hermitages very close to where he lived. And it became to the point where there were so many of them that he said, okay, fine, we're going we're gonna to create a community. And that is the Kenobic monk. Those are the ones that live in community. And those are the ones that everyone, everyone just talked about a little bit earlier. Those are the ones that you know of. The ones who make the beer and live in a cloister or monastery and, you know, dress in fun clothes and everything. Now, the other thing, though, is in the Kenobic is they live under a rule. And a rule is, again, gives shape to your life together. You have a way of living. I don't know about you, but when I lived in college, I had a suite. We had four guys. Richard, Randy, and Chuck. And myself. Richard was from Massachusetts, Chuck was from California, Randy was from Ohio, I think, and I was from Wisconsin. All different kinds of people, all different kinds of lives. Coming together, two rooms sharing one bathroom. You know what we developed to make our life a little bit easier? A rule. We developed a rule on how we were going to live with each other. Yeah, it, it wasn't as holy as the rule of St. Benedict. However, it gave shape to our life together, mainly around cleaning the bathroom. I, I'll just be real honest. It was really about cleaning the toilet. However, 
the rule for, <laughs> for monks isn't really about cleaning the toilet, although I'm sure that's part of it, is really about centered on how the community can support and love one another in holiness and, and Christian life. But all I'm saying is that this idea of a rule and how we shapes our lives together, with, if we don't have an open heart to kind of see how the monastic life could actually influence us and we disregard it, well, we have to slow down a little bit in our disregarding because we actually do have a rule of life for a lot of our lives. It's just that maybe it's not as intentional as the monastery. So that's the Kenobics. Now, here's the thing. Little, little, uh, um, sometimes we conflate things. Which one was Martin Luther? Was he a monk or was he a friar? He was the BS he was the verses, that's right, he was. So Martin Luther, uh, he was actually a friar. I hear this all the time where people say he was a monk and he lived. No, he was actually a friar. Now what's the difference? Well, for our purposes, it doesn't really matter whatsoever. However, just so you can, you know, show, your, show off to your family how smart you are about Reformation history, the fr a friar is someone who doesn't, they live in community, but they don't live in a monastery. Their main job is to actually preach the gospel and care for the poor. And another interesting thing about the friars is they have no possessions whatsoever to the point where they actually beg for their livelihood. Now, if you, if you read anything about Martin Luther, he really is upset about that sort of thing because he believed that it was sucking life out of people and disguising it as like piety. Anyways, but he was a friar, not a monk, just FYI. But friars also had rules and they did, well, lived in a community. They didn't live in a monastery. Do you want to take a guess on what they lived in? Friary. A friary. <laughs> it's just, it's in the name. It's silly. Okay. But yeah, but for our purposes, that means no difference whatsoever. Just, I just, because, um, again, if you don't know any, is there any, any, uh, faint, well, we'll get to that next week. Okay, you guys, if you have your Bibles, let's pull it out. So, can anybody find in the Bible where it says monasteries are bad or good? No, no you can't. That's right, because they're not in the Bible. However, we're going to lay out, we're going to just, we're going to create a, a sort of a tapestry in which to discuss the possibility of monastic piety. We're going to take a look at Adam, Abraham, Moses, Paul, Mary, and Martha. I just want to make sure, I want to highlight how Christians are called. The word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia, which means called out. And so, you know, people who go to church are called out. They're the called out of ones. Called out ones. So every Christian is, a, is called. Now typically how we describe that is you have the call of discipleship. And by the way, this Sunday is Mark chapter 1, where Jesus calls his first disciples. Peter and Andrew and James and John. So, but within our perspective, our primary call is in baptism. Everyone's got the same call in baptism. 
but each of us have a specific call. And I listed a few. Father, gardener, president, missionary, janitor. And then, of course, I put the milkmaid in there. because that's Luther loves the milkmaid. Those are specific calls. But those calls, what we'll find out is those calls actually come out of a primary call within baptism. Adam, Abraham, Moses, Paul all have calls, very specific calls. And then when we get to Mary Martha, it's a little bit different. So if you, we're just going to go right, right down the line. So Genesis chapter 2. You might say, I've never thought about Adam having a call. The call, of course, is to, primarily right to, to follow Jesus. Adam's call had a specific call, though. And it's, you know, it's not going to be too profound here, but... Okay, when no bush of the... So, Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, a mist was coming up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord, okay, so we've got to keep reading. Did I stop at seven? Yeah, okay. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, so if we go back to chapter one, we'll see also, too, the idea of having dominion. But God creates this garden and then puts a man into it to tend the garden. So Adam has a calling to be a gardener by tending to creation. Now again, we don't think about it much, but if we slow down and ask the question, what is the character of such a mundane job before sin entered into the world? I mean, this, is, this actually impacts. If we understand our calling in life as it's meant to be, which is hard for us because we're sinners, but we are redeemed sinners, and that redemption radically changes our job, our calling. And we see this precisely in Adam. Adam was a gardener. Mundane job. He was a farmer. But how does the character of that job change when there is no sin? Well, it's a religious vocation. Because as he tended to creation, he's becoming closer to God. In his mundane job, he's becoming closer. Now when I say job, I should, I should be saying calling. He becomes closer with God. Now again, we haven't really thought about that. Because now when Adam sins, what, is it, what happens to him? Cast out of the garden. He's cast out of the garden. And then on top of that, what does he say about his work? It's going to be a huge struggle. The thing is, though, what, Jesus, what God doesn't say, though, is this work will keep you from me. That's very important for us to make a note of, is that it's going to be a struggle. It's not going to be like it was before sin, but yet that you have the same job or same calling, and, I will, and that will still be an avenue for you to become closer to me. But what's interesting about this is that Genesis 3.8, Jesus, or God, comes into the garden at the cool of the day. 
Is anyone gardening here? I think like I, I love gardening, by the way. So, okay, what's the best time to do gardening? In the cool of the day. So the fact that God is going in the cool of the day, He's precisely looking for Adam at His work. So He wants to spend time with Him in His job, in His calling. So there is no difference for Him between doing His His like His quote unquote job. In his contemplative life. So I use the word active life and contemplative life. So active life is, you know, I don't know, water skiing. No, active life is just, you know, <laughs> going to work, participating in society, which could be water skiing, I guess. And then the contemplative life is your prayer life, devotional life, kind of, kind of what we would consider more like religious activities. But within Adam, they're, they're like together. So his gardening becomes an avenue of prayer and union with God, or time with God. Great. Now, let's turn a few more pages over to Genesis chapter 12. So again, I want to go back. Adam was called to do this, and when he's called to do this, God is present in doing that. But his work is drawing him closer to God. Okay, now we're after sin has entered into the world. Things, things are a little different now. Now the Lord said to Abram, just in case you don't know, this is also Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Okay, God called him, right? Called him to go somewhere to a land and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, the word nations in there is peoples, and the fact that families is used is um, kind of more helpful. So, Abraham is not necessarily. His, his calling is not to set up nation-states, but families, peoples. It's, it's, it's a little thing to make to know. So, Abraham's calling is to be a father of a special people. Father. Abraham's fatherhood was defined by love of God, expectation of the impossible, and, and striving with God or struggling with God. Now those, okay, so how does that happen? Love of God. It was accounted to him as righteousness. That is in Genesis, of course, but it's then again is in Habakkuk. Everyone's favorite minor prophet, Habakkuk. The expectation of the impossible. Just think of all the things that happened in Abraham's life. First of all, leaving his family, <laughs> going to, to Jerusalem or to, the, you know, to Israel, promised land area. Or Cana. Canaan. What happened with Isaac? What happened in Egypt? I mean, all these things that he has these expectations that God is going to go fulfill. And then striving with God, going with God, or struggling with God. Those are all three great descriptions of the life of faith. So Abraham's fatherhood was defined by the life of faith and his family. That, and then we'll, I mean, but all that is carried out then in a variety of contexts. But it's also confirmed in Genesis 22 when Abraham sits down and eats with 
the Lord, the three visitors. This is, again, important. Abraham has a sort of a quote-unquote mundane calling to be a father, but in being a father, he also then is drawing closer to God. So there's this active and contemplative aspect that is to Abraham's calling. Now in Moses, uh, I, didn't, I didn't do Exodus 3 for his calling. I did Numbers or Deuteronomy 34, just because I don't think a lot of people read Deuteronomy 34. So we should, we should take a look at it if you want to turn to it. Now that I look at it 10, though, I'm not sure if that's actually the right word, a right verse. Oh, it is. Okay. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. I wanted to get the face to face in there. We all know Moses. Moses was called in the burning of the bush, burning bush, I'd say the burning bush, to be a leader, to lead Israel out of bondage. Moses fulfilled his calling by regularly doing what? Well, meeting with God. But his meeting with God was face-to-face. We see this in the burning bush. We see this in uh, Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai when he goes up to the commandments. We see this in Exodus 24 when him, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu go up the mountain and sit down and eat with God face-to-face. And then, of course, we see it later in Exodus when he would go into the tent of meeting and come out with his appearance shown all white. So he's doing his leader things. This is why I put president up at the top there as far as specific calls. Moses is kind of unusual because he's kind of like a king. He's kind of like a prophet. He's kind of like a priest. So he's a little bit different. But he he carries out his kind of day job by regularly meeting with God face to face. Very important for us to make note of. Okay, so he has an active life, contemplative life. And then finally, Paul, we won't belabor this too much, is that Paul, of course, has a very dramatic calling, and he's called to be a missionary. Okay? And then we could name a lot of the epistles, but Paul then does make reference to his prayer life and how his prayer life keeps confirming his calling as an apostle, as a missionary to the Gentiles. So what, what, what I, the whole point, though, of all these examples is we get to see this active and contemplative component in the Christian life. These go together. There's this aspect of our life that we, whatever we do in life also is complemented and empowered by the contemplative aspect of our life, of our relationship with God. And we see this most explicitly in Luke chapter 10. Mary and Martha, and you know, this is pretty well known. Feel free to turn to it. I just want to make one highlight about Jesus' response because sometimes this has been misused to designate the contemplative life over and above the active life. But that would be misreading the text. So Luke chapter 10, 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with, such, with much serving. She went up to him and said, 
Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So again, the, over the, the years, Mary has been understood as the contemplative aspect of a Christian, Martha the active. And what's interesting about this text is that they're, they're together. They, they have to go together. When one is disregarded or one's put above the other, then life suffers. So what Jesus is, so what's, what's uh, Martha's contention? That the active life is better than the contemplative life. But what Jesus is saying is that there's not one or the other, it's both. And, but in fact, the source of our active life is, is your heart, which is nurtured by the contemplative life. So what Jesus is saying is, Mary can't serve without spending time at the feet of Jesus. And without that, the active life then becomes devoid of God. Go ahead, James. So, uh, say more about how, how we are viewed as, as equals if Jesus is saying this one is the good one. Yeah, so what Jesus, so okay, so for instance, can you imagine Moses doing what he did without regular time with God? Face to face. You know, going through the struggles of people complaining whether he's doing a good job, not really sure where to go in the wilderness, leading people, like being a leader. Now, again, we, we, we know the whole story, so it's kind of hard of us to kind of bracket some of this information out. But for Moses to be a, essentially a political leader with a, a, you know, a pretty, pretty hard job, Without that time with God face to face, he's dead in the water. So what Jesus is saying to Martha is that you, you are, you are going to burn out here in your active serving without spending time at the feet, my feet. And that, that's, that's pretty clear if anyone's in the ministry or you know, if anybody knows pastors who get burned out, number one reason why they get burned out is they... They don't have a prayer life. That's not the number one reason. It's one of the top five reasons. Um, so that, that's what Jesus is talking about. So, but the other, so it's not so much better, and the other one is, you know, like worthless, or you can disregard it. But it's more of like the power or the engine for that active life comes through the contemplative life. I'll show you the foil, the foil, though, is precisely what Martin Luther, and again, we'll get to this a little bit later, but a little foreshadowing, his whole, well, I shouldn't say, one of his critiques was contemplative life without this active life becomes self-referential. It doesn't do anyone any good. It doesn't, doesn't do your neighbor any good. So this is another aspect, too, of what Jesus is talking about, is that when you disregard the active life and you only spend about the contemplative life, again, you might be saying, well, how can, how can like being 
spending time with Jesus ever be a bad thing? Well, Jesus has given you a call. And all the calls that we've done for Adam, Abraham, Moses, Paul, are all outwardly focused. And so, you can't recharge your batteries and then not go out. That's not the point of, of what the contemplative life is all about. But one of the results that could be then is that you are so secure in your contemplative life that it now becomes about your, your own contemplative life and not about the person you're sitting at the feet of. And that's the danger. So that's why you have to have both of them because the active life, then you exercise these um, muscles. Yeah, you're, you're kind of training. But you, can never, you, can, you cannot get rid of one or the other. And again, so, so when Jesus talks about it, it it's, it's, I would say it's like the center. Well, like for instance, this way. What's the most, you know, it's like, I always think about the human body. Uh, my blood comes out of my heart. You know, it's without my heart, you know, right? But if I didn't have any veins, it's kind of worthless. But I still need this, like, en- you know, this engine pumping through my, my veins. But without this, nothing else is going to work. It's the same with what Jesus is talking about. It's without spending time at my feet, none of that other stuff will work. Well, uh, would, would you say that there's something to the fact that he uses the word fortune? As in, like, there's... There's a good and bad amount of this, and she is a good portion. That's right. That's right. Yep. Very good. Wow. Good job. Yeah. Now we. I mean, we could go into. Well, we could go through of several other examples. Jacob. Jacob's one that I was debating whether to do, but Elijah would be another one. Okay. So I asked this question: Is monastic life biblical? Well, it depends on what what's going on. So let's take a look. There's some things about monastic life. Things that are defining characteristics of monastic life. Vows. If we understand vows as a deliberate and free promise made to God about a possible and better good, then, yeah, we, we can, vows are probably biblical. James 5.12, Matthew 5.37. James, well, James, James actually is kind of quoting Jesus. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, in Matthew, Jesus says very similar things about you don't have to make promises, you know, based you know on a higher thing. You just your yes is yes and your no is no. You're 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 bound. Now vows, though, in the Old Testament are very different because in number six, does anyone know what that vow is? Samson, yeah, the Nazarite vow. Samson being the well, I shouldn't say that. He's the most famous Nazarite in my mind. Uh, there's another one. I forgot. Chapter 30 is a little known uh, vow, but I would encourage everyone just to read Numbers 30. Just, we're not going to look at it because we're running out of time. But is, there's vows for women, and, and not to get on a tangent, but um, one of the vows for women is uh, celibacy in Numbers 30. And it actually makes a, a, it actually makes a provision for a like the woman who gets married, a husband can agree to that vow of celibacy. And so they actually have a celibate marriage, which sounds crazy. I understand 
It's in the Bible. Uh, and this is often where uh, the biblical like, support for Mary actually have already made a vow of celibacy when the angel Gabriel came to her. So that's a tangent. The whole point is there's vows of the Bible. That's all I was going to say. Chastity and celibacy, Matthew 19, 12, a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. Then obviously Apostle Paul, he's a celibate. Um, uh, poverty, Luke chapter 12, sell your possessions, give to the poor. Self-denial, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever loses his life, gains his life. Whoever gains his life, loses his life. Andrew, yeah. There was a margin Well, okay, uh, yeah, you never reject yourself because you'd be disagreeing with God. When, you say, when I say self-denial, I, I could say putting others first before you always, yeah. But all these are nuanced, by the way. So when I say poverty, I don't mean like everyone, I mean, some of you might be called to do that and you're struggling with that right now, I don't know. But the aspect of po poverty is to say it, po to say it uh, more positively is your neighbor's need is more important than yours. Self-denial. Love always loves others before yourself. Chastity. Living your sexuality full blast in purity. Because, you know, husbands and wives need to live chastely too. So, um, but if you're called to be single then you're celibate. If you're called to be married, then you're not celibate. You're married. But both celibates and married people have to live chastely, which we, we can talk about some other time. I just, yeah. Communal living. Jesus and his disciples spent three years together. Acts 2, Acts 4, Psalm 133. One of my that's probably my favorite th psalm. Well, no, Psalm 23 is my favorite. But that's one of my favorites, Psalm 133. Hourly prayers. We, we, we have these examples in the Bible. Uh, the book of Daniel. Daniel gets caught because they always know when he's going to pray. So there's the idea of prayer. Uh, pursuit of holiness. I mean, there are many biblical examples of, of lives taking on an active and contentedly character. And then the list here that we just looked at, almost all the facets of monastic life can be found in the Bible. So, I mean, what are we to conclude? Even though there's no biblical mandate for monasticism, it seems monasticism can be biblical. It is biblical. So if that's true, then how, how do we understand it and how do we incorporate it into the life of the church? All right, Mary and Martha, already the paradigm of monastic living uh, because they represent the integration so our active life and contemplative life can never be at odds. And this was the challenge to the vicar way back when. I'm so busy, pastor, I don't have time to pray. Well, your, your life's wrong then. So I said to him, you're doing your job wrong. <laughs> you can't do it, pastor. I said, no, you can do it. It's okay. If your active life is being lived out to the detriment of your contemplative life, contemplative life, prayer life, Bible reading, spending time meditating on God's Word. If that's the case, then you're choosing the, 
the bad portion. You need to choose the good portion. You are like Martha running around the house. In fact, when one is disregarded or one is above the other, there's always problems in the church. There's always been problems in the church. And I would say we see that right now. So Martin Luther's experience was monasticism was put far above active life, and that's why we need to have a reform. By the way, side note, all the great reformations in the church over the years started in, what's your question, friaries or, mon or monasteries. Every single one, almost. I, I, yeah, because the reformation started in Wittenberg. So that's just FYI. Hey, Michael, I'll get to you for a second. So Martin Luther's experience was there needed to be a reformation because there was one that was put above the other. Uh, now our experience is it's so disregarded and not part of our life that my question is, are we missing something in the life of our church? Michael. I know you said there was nuance with regard to the characteristics of monastic life and the examples in scripture. I, I just had a question about the example regarding communal living. The example is uh, Jesus and his disciples. Yeah. But I, that's, that, that's not the... Well, did they live communally? That's a, that's a simple question. They do live communally. Yeah. They, but not they left their homes to live communally. I mean, I, that's all I meant. What are, what, are, what are you, how are you reading it? Okay. No, but how are you reading it? Oh, well, it, it's not what monasteries are. Because monasteries are where they live apart from society, right? And, well, no, no, they left their life to live together. That's, that's all I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. But communal life too, though, okay, but the notion of communal life is, so like for instance, you are, by the way, communal living is not just monasteries. Seminary is communal living. I left my home to go live in this place. So, college life is that way. I mean, sometimes people are forced to do it. What do you call that? Jail. So, I mean, so there's all these aspects of communal living where we do live with each other. That's right, penitentiary, exactly. So uh, that's why I didn't want to read any more into it, though, Michael. But Michael's point, though, see, this is, the, this is one of the things that we have to make reference to, and we'll get to that, especially when Luther talks about this, is that when you go out of society to only pray and never then back into the world, there's something wrong. In fact, let's talk, let's just real briefly, because Michael brought it up. Mike, so Martin Luther, what did he do? He left his regular job to go into the friary, Okay, but what did he experience in the friary? Holy living, he was just encouraged in his life, right? He just, his faith grew wonderfully. No. It was despair and terrible. But from those experience and through his study of God's word, which is practice of the monastic life, he found the Apostle Paul rediscovered the gospel. Didn't he read the gospel for the first time? That's, I mean, that's what he says, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you know, when I, I said, did he, is that literally reading, like on a book? I don't know, maybe. I, did, I always took it as the first time as like, I've been to church many times before, but that's the first time I ever heard that say. Which, is that literally true or not? I don't know. But what was the point, though? 
what did he do? Then he left the monastery, right? Like he went out into the world back where he started from. So that's kind of an interesting little, little tidbit is that he left the world to go into the friary and then he left the friary to go back into the world but completely changed. So there was some good done, not in the way it was supposed to though. But yeah, so, so Michael is absolutely right that the, the monastic life leaving the world because it's evil or whatever, that, that's something that we, that's not biblical by any stretch of imagination. But the idea of communal living where people do not live alone is what I was getting at. Because there's nobody alone in the church. There shouldn't be. All right, we, we, need to, we need to wrap this up real quick. So I just asked some basic questions at the end, and then uh, I just want to raise them because we'll be, we'll be coming back to them real quick. Has the Lutheran Church disregarded the contempt of the life to the detriment of our witness to the gospel? Good question. Has the notion that vocation is better than the other left us living in no particular way? Kind of, in, in, you know, kind of nebulous. This idea that maybe a rule could help us live together. Again, not, not saying strictly like the Benedictine rule. Because that wouldn't work, because I'm married and I have kids, and it's not going to work. How could God call someone to the explicit contemptible of life in the Lutheran Church? How could that happen? Could that happen? And all the other aspects of what that means. All right, so next week what we're going to do is we're going to take a uh, brief... There, there's um, a lot, like I said, a lot of like, developments within monasticism that's really good for the church. But as I already said, it kind of goes like this. Ebbs and flows where really wonderful, great things, you know, gospel spreading, lives are changed, and then all of a sudden, the world kind of creeps in and people start thinking about themselves only, and then all of a sudden it goes, kind of goes down. And then all of a sudden someone says, hey, this isn't right and renews things. So you see this ebb and flow throughout church history. And we're going to stop next week at the Reformation because then in two weeks we're going to bring in Martin Luther and take a look at his critique of the Reformation or uh, the monasteries, but actually see the flip side of those critiques and say, ooh, is there a way forward? I'm very excited about it because um, as we did before, I want to cultivate a life of reading the Bible but now I want to cultivate a life of prayer amongst us men. All right, we're heading back downstairs.